Dear Heavenly Father, you are so good. We worship you because we know you. We know what it's like in this room to feel completely accepted, accepted and loved by you and cared for because of one reason alone. We are in Christ. God, I pray that the riches that are in Christ in this week and in next that are revealed by Paul through Romans would come alive to our hearts because while we study and we read such amazing words, God, if we're honest with ourselves, there's a very far distance between our head and our hearts. So God, we ask you to make real and alive your precious word. And God, I ask that as your instrument, that you would clear my brain, my anxiety, that you may receive the glory through another weak vessel. And I pray this in your name. Amen. So, Romans, week one of two sessions. This week, we're going to cover justification, quite simply, because that's what Paul does in the text in the first half of Romans. In chapters one through four, Justification is the emphasis, and next week we will cover chapters 5 through 11, where the emphasis then switches from sin to the sinner, and where sanctification is going to come into the forefront. Today, you will receive a greater understanding of justification now that we have studied the redemptive thread over the time that we have worked so hard in the study, and I hope that the thread comes through in a powerful way for you today. We know that Paul is the author of this glorious book. He wrote Romans between A.D. 55 and 58. His audience was a major, uh, a, a, for the most part, a Gentile audience, and then there was a minority of Jews. That doesn't matter. My husband, um, as a teacher, if a student has a question, they raise their hand, and he stops the class to answer the question many times of the minority, and most are, of Romans is really written to the Jews, even though the audience was primarily Gentile, and there are very important reasons for that, which we will cover in just a moment. Paul is going to give us his purpose for the book in the very first sentence, which feels more like a paragraph, but he says that his goal was to bring glory to God by revealing Christ. In the first sentence, we read that this is the one prophesied by the prophets who had descended from David and who was the Son of God. This would have stopped them. They would have understood that Paul was saying that the one had just died, the one that the Gentiles had heard about had died on the cross. They wouldn't have known as much about this man prophesied as the Jews should have. But to them, he's saying this is God himself. And right there, this letter would have stopped them in their tracks. Number two, in the first paragraph we read, or second goal that Paul had, was to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. In other words, Paul immediately tells us that his goal in writing Romans was to spread the gospel, and specifically he wanted to take this gospel to Spain. But there was a problem. 
with the questions that had come up concerning the gospel, it was going to be his mission to come in and clarify these questions that the Jews were raising because if there were any questions about his theology, then the gospel would not have spread. And so Romans is going to feel like a legal argument. It is a well-presented case by Paul, and it is phenomenal. I think that um, I love studying geology and, um, and, and topography. It's so fascinating to me. Uh, Romans would be like going to Nepal or the Bhutan, and, and, and that's the correct pronunciation. I would say Bhutan. But, um, but, but where the mountains are so great, and here we have the Everest of mountains with, with the theology that Paul is going to present to them. And so we, we're going to climb some mountains in this book, and it is phenomenal. And it's Paul's goal to climb these mountains and explain to them what is happening so that the gospel can go forth. According to Thomas Schreiner, Paul's gospel would have never been accepted if fundamental disagreement existed over his conception of the role of the Jews and the Gentiles in God's plan. So God is going to have to defend these points, otherwise his entire mission is going to be jeopardized. Schreiner adds that full discussions of Christiology, which would have been studies of Christ, ecclesiology, that would have been studies of the church, eschatology, which would have been studies of the end time, are not going to be needed in this book because no one really questioned Paul's writings up to this point about those matters. The Thessalonians, other books have been written, and so Paul is coming and he is bringing to the forefront the biggest issues in Romans that the Jews are deal dealing with in order for this gospel to go forward. And so Paul instead is going to defend and explain the true nature of the gospel for the purpose of expansion. His third purpose would have been to bring unity because of these issues that were causing conflict. So there is conflict in the church between the Jews and the Gentiles. We have seen that. We've learned about it. And now that the Gentiles have the gospel, the fighting in some ways has actually become worse. One of the reasons is because the Jews felt that they were better than the Gentiles. A very um, a story that came to my mind as I was studying this, when I was in high school, I don't know if you've ever seen those movies like The Mean Girls, um, and so there's one person that they kind of just set aside in high school and they're all just collectively mean to them. Well, I can relate to those movies because when I went to high school, there was a clique of, of Mean Girls, there were specifically four of them, and there was like the head of the Mean Girls, and they just decided that their four-year mission was to destroy my life, be cold and mean to me, even though we ran in the same circles, spread rumors about me, and it all kind of hit um, its peak my junior year of high school when they wrote letters to me and stuck them in my locker, which, like a smart junior, I opened my locker, proceeded to read the notes, fell to the floor, and um, if I thought suicide was an option, that probably would have been the end, end of me. But as the Lord would have it, it was actually the event that led me to be saved. I was so broken and crushed by the accusations of the people in my class that weren't true um, that I uh, went into a, a very deep depression. And uh, at my senior, or, or I guess it was maybe my junior retreat, it was a priest uh, that, that taught me how to forgive, a priest in the Catholic Church that taught me how to forgive and I had an encounter with the Lord um, that was so real, and I knew that he loved me, and I, I kept returning to that, and eventually, because, I, because he kind of pulled me out of that, I came to him in repentance. And, uh, but the trauma was so difficult for me that I, even being a Christian, I couldn't live there anymore. So I, I, I went away. I was gone for 18 years, and that's not the whole reason I left, but it made it much easier to, uh, to spend many, many years away from Louisville because... Um, it was very hard for me growing up, but when I returned home, um, 
I, I, uh, I, I was at the pool, and you, you can't get away from, from your past when you live here, and a friend that I went to high school with came to me, and she said, Sarah, she goes, it's so good to see you. I hope you're doing well, and I asked about her, and she's going to church, and I thought that's so wonderful, and she goes, you'll never guess who I go to church with, and she said to me, I go to church with so-and-so, and this, this so-and-so happened to be the head of the Mean Girls, and my initial thought was, well, and I think I might have said this, well, I guess that there are fake Christians in church because there's no way she's really a Christian. And I wanted to share that because it was such a natural outflowing for me. I could not wrap my brain around the unkindness for so many years of this particular girl that she would look different because that's what Christianity is. It just, it was inconceivable to me. And I wanted to point that out because that is that is the spirit of some of what's going on. The Jews are in complete shock that the Gentiles now have this gospel, and Paul is going after them. He, they are saying, what do you mean that the promises, these things that are promised to us, are for the Gentiles? That would have been so profound to them. But what about the promises that you made to us? What about the covenants and the law? Those are sacred to us. Don't they mean you love us more, that we are in Christ, that everything is fine? And Paul is going to answer these questions, and he is going to say something that would have surprised many of them. And this is what he is going at in this book. They also want to know, if this gospel is true, how do we fit in? And what has changed now that Christ has come? And then Paul is going to come in in Romans and address these issues He's going to answer them, and he's going to explain and show how Christ actually fulfills what the Old Testament scriptures teach about the law, circumcision, and the role of Israel in salvation history. He's also going to tell why he does this, and this is so beautiful. Paul actually wants the Jews and the Gentiles to worship God in harmony because he would have understood that their unified worship would have fulfilled what the Old Testament scriptures taught all along. It is a gospel of reconciliation. Something that's been phenomenal to me is that when I run into people from my past that I feared for many years running into, there's love in my heart toward them. And I'm pretty confident that even while my first reaction to this girl was just, you've got to be kidding me, she's not saved, that now that I'm a believer, that if I run into her, and I'm certain the Lord will have me in his timing, I will feel no less love and kindness and grace with her because of the reality of Christ that's come in my heart. This is the fruit of the salvation, and this is what Paul was aiming at with the Jews in the relationship with the Gentiles, and his goal in writing Romans to bring them into unity. He is trying to bridge this gap, okay? So now that we've identified his why, I love Romans because it can be summarized so easily. In fact, I tried to think of another book of the Bible that could be summarized as easily as Romans could, and I couldn't think of one. And I think I came up with this on my own, and I, I, I test me in it. But I think the book could be summarized in the single word of righteousness. I say this because in chapter 1, clarifies that the greatest problem of mankind is the righteousness of God that humans do not measure up. In chapters 2 through 5, Paul defends God's righteousness and explains who is righteous before God and how God solves the problem of man's unrighteousness. In chapters 6 through 8, what righteousness looks like for those who have attained it in chapters 9 through 10, God's righteous sovereignty and his plan for Jews and Gentiles. And in chapters 12 through 16, Paul exalt, exhorts the Romans in a righteous lifestyle. Now that we have the setting and the summary, 
Paul is going to systematically argue this issue like a skilled, brilliant lawyer and divider of the word of God in truth. And the way he does this is so brilliant, he is just going to level any argument that there could be, okay? And, and uh, I liken this to, to 9-11. Um, it was perfect timing. Christy Fields was in New York, and she showed that monument of how the, the water was going to, into the ground over Christmas when, when I was writing this. And, and I was just thinking, you know, it's so perfect. And I remember uh, of, of analogies as far as the Twin Towers uh, being hit. I remember several years before they were hit, my sister and I, uh, we're with my mom in New York, and we were on the top of them, and you just feel this sense of, of awe, like you're standing on top of the world, and there's just a sense of pride that comes, and that's what was so shocking about those towers coming down, is how could that possibly happen? In hindsight, looking back, it didn't just level the towers, it leveled the pride of America. I mean, how do you level the pride of America? But we felt that as a nation and that is what Paul is going toward in Romans, but he is going to level the pride of mankind. And the way he does this is so brilliant, it's almost as if there is a courtroom, okay? And this is a perfect analogy because it is a legal, uh, kind of like a legal uh, thing that's going on, and it's, it's, it's as if it's like God is the judge, right? And Paul is going to um, present the case, the case, the verdict against the Gentiles and the Jews. So if you can picture the Lord on the, on the, as the judge, and then you have your Gentiles on the left, or uh, and, then the, and then the Jews on the right, okay? And first he's going to, in chapter 1, he's going to indict the Gentiles, okay? To indict means to formally accuse or charge with a serious crime, and that's what he's going to do. So here is his case. No matter what you think or no matter what you feel, this is what God says about everyone, all of mankind, okay? Specifically the Gentile. And, and actually also the Jew, but, but right now he's, he is indicting the Gentiles. Number one, all people have knowledge of God, and because of his revelation that he gave to us in creation, even though it has been repressed. And God put this in your heart, whether you acknowledge it or not, you know right from wrong. And, Paul, and this is what the Lord and the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, is saying through Paul. Romans 1.19 says, What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. No matter what you say or think, atheist, this is what God says is true. Number two, indictment. You fail to glorify God as the proper object of worship. Injustice is that God is worthy of our worship, and yet we worship ourselves. In short, we care about more, we care more about our own glory than about his, and the list could go on and on and on. But these are the main indictments. And as a result, instead of worshiping God, we worship the created order. So basically, when we stand before God at judgment, God will use what we worshiped on this earth, um, which is, would be called idolatry, the things that we worshiped and we loved and we used, our, used to satisfy ourselves in the created or, order, so on the horizontal, and he will say, it, it, was, it was never vertical, right? Uh, your idolatry is your in indictment against you. You worship the creative order instead of giving proper glory and thanks to me. And therefore, you are accountable because I put in your heart what you were supposed to do. I gave revelation of myself to you in creation. And yet, you've done exactly what you've wanted to do. And it was evil. So now that he has indicted the Gentiles, in chapter 2, he turns and he indicts the Jews. The context. 
So they believed that their covenant with the one true God protected them from experiencing God's wrath and was a sign of their salvation. In short, they were self-righteous, and so God must bring them down to ground zero and level their pride as well. Their pride might even be a little larger, okay, in God's eyes. So the Gentiles had creation, but on top of creation, the Jews had revelation above all else of God himself. Think of what the law actually was. It was a means and end to understanding what God wanted as a person, as a real being. He was in love with them. He provided for them. He cared for them. He was a father. They knew him in an experiential, amazing way. They were more accountable because they had seen his miracles. They had tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and yet what did they do? They were no different than the Gentiles as a collective body, even though there were some that we saw throughout Scripture that did love him. That would be the remnant. But for the most part, the, Jew, the indictment against the collective body of Jews is that they did not obey the law. Even though God had revealed this to them, had given them more revelation to the Gentiles, they loved themselves still, and they do not worship God. The law was meant to protect them and to lead them to God in the covenant so that they would actually worship him. But nevertheless, they did not follow them as we saw. We walked, we walked through this all last year. So first, the Gentiles were indicted for knowing God and yet failing to worship him, and the Jews are indicted for transgressing the law, but both are guilty. And so the trial is over, and God's verdict, we're in chapter 3, Romans 3, 11 through 12, what then? Are the Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jew and Greeks are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. That is what the Bible tells us we become when we do not worship God and fulfill his destiny for our lives, which is to be satisfied in him. So we are guilty, and then he gives us our sentencing. Romans 2, 8 through 11 says, For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the geek, gr uh, Greek. And as such, Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, so this is what you deserve, and we stand under his wrath. One of the things about God's wrath, says Charles', Charles letter, is that his wrath is directly tied to his justice. It has to do with his righteous determination to punish every sin to balance the scales of justice, and to make every wrong right. Because he's a good job, God, and we know this, he has to deal with injustice. And no one misses that our system is broken, that justice has to come. It has to come to the, the woman who's been raped, the child who dies of leukemia, the self-indudgment, the irritable, the morally and noble thing, the, 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 the things that are happening, the taking of innocent lives. No one wants to hear, though, that God's wrath burns against them. But God is a good judge, and so all injustice he is going to, he is going to deal with. And J.R. Packer summarizes, God's wrath in the Bible is never capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ennoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. And that is found in knowing God. And so what we see here is that ultimately the towers fell, God wasn't the one that brought them down. While he, we are indicted, what actually brought the towers down was our sin. 
It was our sin, and it wasn't an enemy from without, like 9-11, but it was the enemy within all of us that brought those towers down. And as such, sin is our first and biggest problem, okay? And we know in Scripture that whenever there's bad news, there's always that but. And I love that it's, it's probably that I would call this the hinge Scripture. Katie said that... Um, that, you know, that we're going to look up close at the hinge, and in Romans we're doing that. Um, I would say that this is like kind of the Mount Everest of the New Testament. Immediately we climb there, and Romans 3.21 says the righteousness of God through faith. And this is God building up those towers, right? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified, big word, remember justified, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forth as a propitiation, we studied that, remember that word again, by his blood to be received by faith. Okay, so what does this mean? Basically, Christ stands trial. So here's the Jews, here's the Gentiles, and it's as if Christ comes onto the scene, stands on the trial, and he says, go ahead and test me. And the Lord looks at him and goes, well, you obeyed my law perfectly. You did everything right that Israel missed. You alone worshiped me perfectly. There is no charge against you. And because God just can't skip over sins, there has to be a payment for them. And the payment for sin is death. Christ says, I am going to take that sin. We all know this in this room, but and 1 Peter 2, uh, 24 says he bore our sins on his body on the cross, and he satisfies God's wrath, okay? So there he's in the courtroom, he stands trial, he is perfect, and he then does this amazing thing, which is so profound. Um, and it is a legal thing that happens in the heavenlies. And I often have to come back to this place in my own spiritual life because of my need to, and my desire to want to please the Lord, I can't. None of us can. None of us can rebuild this tower. God has to, and the way he does it is through two ways. The first word is expiation. Ex means to take away, to remove something. Our guilt removed through payment of penalty. Basically, God moves away from being at enmity, enmity with us to being for us, propitiation, R.C. Sprawl explained this very well, um, basically it brings God change in God's attitude so that he moves away from being at enmity with us to being for us, so it completely changes his disposition, and through propitiation, we are restored into fellowship with favor, in favor with him, so in this courtroom, okay, where God is the judge, he then declares us righteous or right with him, and we walk out of the courtroom. And what's so phenomenal is that we don't just go out and then we're flipping around. We are actually in his family, okay? That has huge implications for not just this week, but next week as well when we study sanctification. It's so phenomenal. But this is the way that God demonstrates his justice while even in justifying the one who has faith in him, okay? So now we have peace with God. We are in the family and you th it begs the question, so therefore, who is right with God? Well, Jews and Gentiles are right with God if they are in Christ. So there's only one way to salvation for both the Jew and the Gentile. A very revealing scripture is Galatians 3.16, which states that now the promises 
were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And Paul points out, it does not say into his offsprings, so not the offsprings of Abraham, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So who was the one to inherit the promises all along? It was one person. The best analogy, I think, for this is that Christ says of himself, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches, John 15, 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Oren Martin claims, the true vine is not apostate Israel, but Jesus himself, and the place of blessing that was once through Israel and being identified with them is now in Christ. If exiled Israel wants to be restored, and this is the desire of their heart, then they must be rightly related to Christ and planted in him. And if not, says Christ, by the analogy of the vine, if not, then they too will be cast out and burned. Basically, true Israel accepts the cross. We saw that in the writings of the patriarchs. We saw that in David. We saw that in Samuel. We saw the foreshadowing of this one that was come. They looked forward to him. We do know that true Israel accepts this truth. John Piper says of this, the implication is that being the body of Christ means that we have been brought now into a Jewish inheritance. We have our salvation because we are fellow citizens with Israel and have become heirs of the promise of Abraham that God would be the God of his descendants. As such, we have been grafted into the true Israel. Now blessings that once flowed for the land now flow from a person this is, who is Christ. We see this in Paul. What did he desire? His longing was a person. It was this relationship. It was Christ himself. Now language that was once used to describe Israel, like foreknown, chosen, justified, are shared by those in Christ. So those of us who are in Christ, who believe and are justified in him, are now included by being associated with the vine in the blessings of Israel. We are God's elect people, righteous in his sight. We are promised new life and eternal salvation. We are recipients of the new covenant, the Holy Spirit with the new heart. We are sons and daughters adopted as his own. And we are recipients of the blessings that have been inherited by Christ. Three more implications of the thread before we move on. Uh, and I'm going to talk more about justification. But first, in Romans, Paul shows that God always intended Abraham to be the father of God's worldwide family, which would consist of both Jew and Gentile. Number two, and there's three points. The death and resurrection fulfill the promise of universal blessing made to Abraham because it is through the death and resurrection of Christ that all people, Jews and Gentiles, enter into the people of God. And three, now that Jews and Gentiles are reconciled to God and are united in Christ, we must be reconciled to each other. That's the point. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16 says that God made peace between the Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward one another was then put to death. And says John Piper, we must be a reconciling people because we are a reconciled people. So we have love for one another, the Jew and also the Greek. I've, I, I've had the privilege recently um, of working with uh, a client, and I found out that they have, one of them has a Jewish lineage, and I have been, like, so excited. Um, that's just super exciting to me, and, uh, and it's rare, and it's been a gift. Um, but but, but our, our love, I mean, God, God adores Israel. 
And, um, and, and it was something that's been interesting to me, he does recognize them still as, as ethnic ethnicity, and their ethnicity is being different, okay? Because, and he has specific things that are going to play out next week when we see as we get further into Romans about their inheritance. But what's coming up now, and the, and the Jews are, uh, they still have some concerns that haven't been addressed by Paul, and so, so that's what Paul is going to now turn to address. And the first one is, Okay, so these things are true. We're now in Christ. Christ has inherited the promises. So what about the law? Because you gave this to us. So it, doesn't that make us special? Where does it fit in? Well, you, didn't, you, didn't, you weren't able to fulfill the law. The law was fulfilled by the only one who could do it and the only one who lived by it perf- perfectly. Christ. Christ was the only one to live perfectly by the law. And he submitted, in fact, to everything that you missed. Okay, so the Jews are asking, what about the covenants? Well, Christ fulfilled all that the old covenant stood for and pointed to. The sacrifices were a shadow of the things to come, but now that atonement has been made in the perfect lamb and the perfect sacrifice, they are void. They're void. The only way, and this is Paul's main point uh, to them, the only way for sins to be forgiven now that Christ has come is through belief in the death of Christ. In other words, if your covenant was adequate, then you don't need to believe that Jesus was the Messiah in order to be a part of the people of God. And Paul is pressing this point. He's saying, yes, you do. You, need to, you do need to believe in him, and here's why. What about circumcision? Paul shows in Romans how Abraham was saved prior to circumcision by faith, and by doing so proves that God's righteousness came prior to, sanctifi- or prior to circumcision. In fact, Circumcision, Paul goes on to show, was always a matter of the heart. What I always wanted was a a circumcised heart, which means that you want to obey God. There's no cover on it. It's, It's a want to. It's a motivation thing. And this is so huge. It doesn't come from the flesh. Um, Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And Paul reminds us in Romans 2, 28, that a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. Uh, by the Spirit, not by the letter. Well, they could have seen this in the Old Testament. It was there all along. I feel like Willy Wonka. Clear as crystal, black and white. You still, never mind, sorry, side note. Uh, I watch a lot of kids' TV shows. Okay. Um, a remnant, uh, so, so, so in other words, th- this was always possible, and there was a remnant. There were people, even as far back as Job, even as far back as him, that had the uncircumcised Um, or had the circumcised heart that wanted to obey the Lord. We saw it in Abraham, this foreshadowing of what was to come. There is a remnant in Israel. I gave you these promises, and because of my law, because these things I give you, many have been saved. But at large, we do have a problem, which we're going to return to next week. And the next question that that, Paul is going to address is, what about the promises? Well, they are still true. All everything I promised you. But they are true, and the true is real. They are true in Christ. If you want to inherit the promises, then be rightly related to Christ because he is the one to inherit them. He was the only one worthy, and they are all coming through him. So if you want to be right with me, come to Christ. So we're going to pause here next week, and um, we're going to take a look at what it means to be in Christ. And then uh, next week we're going to discuss if all the blessings have come to Israel, or the, the blessings have come to Israel if the blessings have come to, that, that were promised to Israel have come to the church, then what about Israel? Sorry, there's your question. Um, and right now, we're going to go ahead and finish up with justification, okay? 
So if sin was our greatest problem, then God's solution is justification. Okay? So these are the things that are true about justification. All right? And I got a lot of this from a gentleman named Charles Letter. I've never heard of him before, but Paul Washer said he read his book from cover to cover many times, and I uh, trust Paul Washer. Um, I, uh, when I first came to this church, it's funny, I didn't know anything about Fisherville, uh, except for Heather saying here. And, uh, and, and I went to Brian, and I said, uh, I don't know you at all. I go, but I just really, I like Alistair Begg, and I like this guy named Paul Washer. And he goes, oh, I'm endorsing a book of his on my desk. So I was like, that's good enough for me. I hung my hat. If you really want to know, I'm that big of a Washer fan. And, um, and so there's this Charles Letter guy, and the book was phenomenal. It's called Justification and Regeneration, if you have a chance to read it. But these things are true. Number one, justification is a gift. We know this. It is free. Romans 4, 5 says... And to the one who does not work but believes him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so what faith does, it directs himself always, and this is so important, in what God has done. It is always a means to end of what God has done. And so we set ourselves in that. It is a declaration. Um, it means to declare righteous. Uh, it's about our standing in God's eyes. It's a declaration by a judge. God is a judge, and basically he's saying there's no charge against you. And it's not because he just lets you off the hook. There has to be a penalty. And so he lets you off the hook based on the fact that there was blood. Now, what does the blood mean? I, I had an epiphany uh, many years ago. It's probably a while now. But when I finally understood the blood, right? Okay, thank you, R.C. Sprawl. He explained this so well. The blood is precious to the Lord because it means there's been a death. That's why he loves it. It's what it represents. It's not just like, I want blood, Right? It means that something has died. It is the sacrifice that he loves. And so the reference is the blood, and this is precious to him and is so important. Please hold on to the blood because it's the basis of justification. Because God has to deal with the sin. Sin is, the, is what has to be dealt with in justification. Next week in sanctification, God is going to deal with the sinner, which is going to take, it's, it's, a, it's a different thing that happens in the heavenlies, and we're going to look at the cross and how the cross satisfies this God's, uh, what God wants to do with the sinner and how that plays out in sanctification. Today, it is the sin, and God has to deal with it. It is dealt with by a ransom that has to be paid, and justification proceeds on the ransom that has to be paid. So, there, so you're guilty, there has, there's, there's a payment, there's a ransom, and then the blood satisfies it. And so when God justifies a person, he doesn't look at the person himself, he looks at the blood. This is so important. I, um, I, 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 can't, I can't tell you. And so what does this mean? Um, number one, do you remember the Passover? Where was the blood? The blood was on the doors of the houses as the, as the angel went past them. It was something that God had to see. The people didn't see it. Same thing in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement when the high priest would go in there and offer the sacrifice for the atonement of the sins. The blood was, it was, it was hidden from the eyes of the people. It was for the Lord. It satisfied him. And why am I sharing this? You know, I think so many times we come before the Lord as Christians and we want him to accept us and we worry about confession, and which is so important for, our, for, for walking with him. But, but we, if, if we would just realize that it, the blood, having satisfied him, is what gives us the boldness to come before him. And, and what I do often, I'll go ahead and share this, um, it's a little strange, but it helps me because I'm so self-righteous and I desire the Lord's approval that I struggle with wanting to do something to please him, but I can't. And so what I will picture myself doing when I go to him and I'm, and I'm serious about praying about something else, I will come before him and be like, Lord, I don't deserve 
you to answer any of my prayers. There's all of my flesh. I was fleshy this week. Here's what I confess. But I'm coming to you with the blood. It covers me. And I picture myself literally covered, walking into the Holy of Holies, the throne of heaven, and coming before him. And that keeps me focused. It keeps me fearful because it's not my righteousness. And as soon as Satan, he will come against me. No, you can't pray. You did this and this and this and this. I'm like, nope, the blood, the blood. So I don't fight Satan on, yeah, I'm a good Christian and I believe this. Never on my works. It's always the blood. This has so freed me. So Satan starts accusing me. I start feeling guilty. The blood, the blood. God accepts me on the basis of his son. Get behind me, Satan. It shuts him down. If we would come to the Lord with that kind of faith, it so pleases him. It just, it just reignites our worship. It's so good. And so Hebrews 9, 11, 12, I believe to when we pray, we pray in boldness based on what he has done. It says, Christ, having become a high priest through his own blood, entered in once and for all into the holy place. He stands in the presence of God. And is the, there's the word propitiation for our sins. This is about the sufficiency of his ministry that Israel could never attain. And being our high priest and what he has done, why wouldn't we come to him on the basis of his sacrifice and what he's done boldly and, and, and intercede and, and be partners with him and, and have and know that we are justified in Christ. It is so amazing. And so we must believe that the blood is precious because God says so. God says so. It satisfies him. It is not about us. So this being true, justification then has no degrees or gradations. A man is either 100% justified by the blood or not, are, are completely condemned, okay? Um, so uh, there's no, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is where we see this. So you're not, you're not a little bit condemned. You're either all or nothing, okay? The other thing about justification is it's once and for all. So when we're in the family— and this, is, this has been done. Uh, I, this, this, this really helped me. So now I'm conscious of my sin, I'm, and I'm conscious as a child of God, but I'm not convicted as a felon. You're either in the courtroom or you're in the family. If you're, not, if you're in the courtroom, you're guilty of all of it. If you're out of the courtroom and you're in the family, then you are, when you sin, you're conscious. This is your God who you can grieve, okay? And so you come before him, and what is it that cleanses us? The blood. And we confess our sins, and he is faithful. And as a perfect parent, he will be perfect to deal with us, um, loving, and he disciplines us in his love. And our status does not change. We are safe. And then, and then I'm going to skip ahead to Romans 8, but Romans 8, 38 through 39. says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. Jesus, this is the adoption of, 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 uh, that we have inherited by being in Christ. And I love this word, but his love is so effective. And that's where sanctification and everything is going to roll so perfectly out of Paul's writing next week when we continue. But God's practical pleasure, concern, adoration is absolutely ours as his child. Justification is negative and positive. That's my next point. God does not credit our sin to us, as we have seen. That's the negative. This is so shocking. But he actually credits Christ's righteousness to us. And this is a really hard thing to swallow, but to, 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 to help us um, meditate on the reality of that verse, Paul, nor Christ, was technically not one bit more justified than you or I. No one can be more justified than somebody else. So, you know, you can be like, well, Paul really had it together. Well, guess what? 
we're just the same in justification. We are the same in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we are his righteousness. So is Christ. So is Paul. We stand there with him. The final point on justification is that it's really just the foundation for so much more. Regeneration and sanctification can't be separated from justification. But once we understand that God has dealt with sin in justification, next week we're going to see how he actually deals with us as sinners. I love today in Sunday school, or in our group, someone said um, that, that we are, we sin uh, because we're sinners. We don't, we're not sinners because we sin. And that is so true. And that's a big problem, which is also God has taken care of in a miraculous way. And that will be next week. What God does, and what we're going to talk about next week, is that he's going to create a new life in us through justification of a new created order that is in the same created order as all of creation. So just as he produced something from nothing when he created this world, he creates something from nothing when we are in Christ and we are identified with him in his death and resurrection. It is so phenomenal. That's next week. Um, and then I, I just love this quote, and I don't know if it applies, but I, I just have to say it. Uh, so John Piper said, God will hold up the church and say to heaven and hell, this is the glory of my son, his bride, his body, his church. Ultimately, it's not about us. It's not even about Israel. It's all a means to an end. It's, it's about Christ. It's about his glory. It's about God's mercy being poured out on ab objects that should be of his wrath. But it's about him. This is all for him. So how can Romans be true? Because it's about the Lord. It's not about us. It's not about us. So in closing, my final thought is if you really believe that you were right before God and you really just sat on that fact, would your worship, would your week, would your day, would how you feel about yourself, your time, would anything be any different? And maybe it wouldn't, but it's a profound thing. And if you're listening to this and you don't know the Lord, uh, then call me. We'll sit down. We'll have coffee. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but it's true. Uh, it's true. And, uh, and, and God, everything that we've talked about is what, is what God does. Uh, it is not about us. So, dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time. Uh, thank you for getting us here today for the sunny weather. And we pray that you would make these things real and alive in our hearts as we leave here today. And again, next week, uh, when we just, just feast on this amazing word. In your name, amen.